At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 32, Cold War Biographies, Ho Chi Minh and General Jap. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. So General Jap and Ho Chi Minh were major characters in our last episode about the war in Indochina, and they will be reappearing again in future episodes in reference to the Second Vietnam War and America's involvement in the region. So in this episode, I'm going to provide a little more of the backstory to these leaders and talk a little about their lives after the Indochina War in the case of Jap, his life after the Cold War. This is not a definitive account of their lives, but a basic account. If you're interested in learning more, check out my sources on the website. If you purchase either of the biographies there, you'll be supporting the podcast at no additional cost. I'm not going to be covering extensively as well either of the leaders' roles in the first Indochina War, since I covered that in the last episode, nor will I be reviewing their decisions in the second Vietnam War against the United States, as I will be covering that extensively in future episodes about the American War in Vietnam. This episode will focus more on their early lives, of the period between the wars, and Jap's life after the Cold War. Ho died, of course, in 1969. Ho Chi Minh was originally named Nguyen Sun Khun, born in Nai An, 1890. Growing up, he studied Confucius and read the works of leading Vietnamese nationalists. This left a deep impression on Ho, and in 1907, he enrolled in the prestigious National Academy in Wei. The following year, though, he was expelled for participating in a peasant protest and ended up on the run trying to evade the French authorities. In 1911, he decided that in order to save his people, he needed to learn more about the world and Europe specifically. Therefore, he became an assistant cook on a ship headed to France. He would not return to Vietnam for another 30 years. Over the next several years, Ho would travel throughout Asia and Africa, to Mexico and South America, to the United States, Britain, and France. When Ho first reached France at Marseille in 1911, he came with mixed feelings. On the one hand, he hated French imperialism and the wrongs they had committed against his country. On the other hand, he learned to admire French culture and civilization. While in France, he even applied to the French School of Colonial Administrators. It's not entirely clear why Ho attempted to join the French colonial service. Some say he sought to undermine French colonialism from the inside. Others say he believed Vietnam might be able to modernize with the help of France. Or maybe both of these reasons prompted his decision. In 1912, he crossed the Atlantic, living in Boston later and working as a laborer in New York City. He said that he was impressed that Chinese immigrants in the U.S. had legal protection, even though they were not U.S. citizens. He admired Abraham Lincoln for ending slavery and for preserving the Union, but he also saw the disparities of racism in America, and it dismayed him that the Americans could espouse such great universal values, 
yet subject black Americans to segregation, discrimination, and lynching. Who attended meetings for black nationalists in Harlem and made a short visit to the South where he observed the lynching of African Americans? Unfortunately, though, although it seems unlikely that he would have lied about his travels in America, we have only his account to go off, as we have no corresponding evidence uh, that he visited the United States during this, this period. Ho Chi Minh remained in America for several months before he left for London, where he wanted to improve his English. Ho was a voracious reader and spent his free time reading and writing, always looking to learn more. He eventually spoke English, French, Russian, and Chinese, both Mandarin and Cantonese, fluently in addition to his native Vietnamese. While in Britain and later France, Ho was deeply moved by the Irish struggle for independence. Again, we have little, very little documentation for this part of Ho's life beyond his own account. Sometime around 1917, Ho moved back to France and became involved in the Parisian anti-colonial scene and the growing French-Vietnamese community there. Before the war, less than 100 Vietnamese lived in France, but with the outbreak of the First World War, thousands moved there as soldiers fighting on the Western Front and many more working in French factories to replace the French men who had gone to the front. By the end of the war, some 50,000 Vietnamese would live in France. Ho, upon his arrival back in France, sought to organize these Vietnamese workers. During this time, there was even rumors of another possible French Revolution. The war was going badly for France, and the French army had mutinied. Radical elements began to distribute anti-war propaganda and organize labor unions throughout the country. However, the entry of America into the war helped to stabilize the French position. As we mentioned last episode, Ho unsuccessfully attempted to meet Woodrow Wilson at the 1919 peace conference. Nevertheless, during this time, Ho made contacts with members of the Korean independence movement. At this time, Korea was a colony of Japan and the Irish independence movement. Paris during this time was still one of the leading capitals of the world and arguably one of the cultural hotspots of the period. Many of the most famous radical thinkers of the 19th century, like Karl Marx himself, had lived in Paris. Moreover, Paris had been the site of the Parisian Commune in 1871. The brutalities of the First World War had electrified many on the political left to attack the capitalist world system. Intellectuals and students from around the world gathered in Parisian cafes and restaurants to discuss politics and plot revolutions. Ho began a frenzied period of writing and attending conferences and lectures. He co-founded a journal, The Outcast, and wrote articles for a number of publications. He wrote and staged a play, which was more or less a flop. He also found time to attend art expositions and concerts. He read Hugo, Voltaire, and Shakespeare. During these years, he really came into his own. He made a deep impression on many of the people he met. Many noted his sense of humor, sensitivity, and charm. Life in Paris economically was hard for Ho. He had no work permit and at 30 had very little in the way of a resume outside of being a cook, tutoring, and a manual laborer. Our sources seem to suggest that he worked many odd jobs to get by making Vietnamese food, making candles, working at a factory, and tutoring Chinese. At some point, though, he got a steady job uh, retouching photos. His activities soon caught the attention of the French Socialist Party, who invited him to become a member of the party. It was in the French Socialist Party that Ho Chi Minh learned to speak publicly, giving a speech at the 1920 Congress Party in Tours. He had originally been quite timid and had stage fright, but soon overcame this and took an active part in discussions at weekly meetings. 
He soon became acquainted with many of the leading figures in Parisian intellectual and radical movements. He though quickly learned, however, that the plight of the Vietnamese people and the evils of colonialism ranked very low on the list of priorities for the French Socialist Party. Most Marxists were focused on achieving a classless society, a subject which Ho had little interest in as it related very little to the problems of the Vietnamese people. Only Lenin spoke powerfully about the connections between capitalism and imperialism and about the potential for a nationalist movement in Asia and Africa. Lenin offered an explanation for colonial rule and a blueprint for national liberation and for modernizing a poor agricultural country like Vietnam. More importantly, Lenin had a pledged Soviet aid through the Comintern for nationalist uprisings throughout the colonial world as a key first step towards worldwide socialist revolution. Ho quickly joined the French Communist Party, but soon learned that they were no different than the French Socialist Party, far more concerned with French workers and French class struggle than they were with the plight of France's colonial subjects. So in 1923, Ho left Paris for Moscow, where he hoped to meet his hero Lenin and this other Soviet leaders. However, when he arrived in Moscow, Lenin was ill and died in January 1924. Ho took the news very hard and cried. He joined the crowds waiting hours in minus 22 Fahrenheit weather to view the dead, the dead leader suffering from frostbite on his fingers and nose. While in Moscow, he participated in meetings of the Comintern, wrote articles for publication, and enrolled at the School of the Oppressed People of the East, which helped to train communist cadres and organize revolutionary movements in Asia. He became an expert on colonial affairs and Asia and made many connections with high-ranking party members. Nevertheless, European and Russian issues still reigned supreme in the minds of the Soviets. In the fall of 1924, he was sent to southern China to advise Sun Yat-sen's nationalist movement and to secretly organize a communist revolution in Indochina. He quickly published a journal around Vietnamese independence and a training institute that attracted students from all over Vietnam. There, Ho taught a new form of Marxist-Leninism mixed with Confucian morality. In 1927, though, Chiang Kai-shek cracked down on the, on the Chinese left and the institute was disbanded, and Ho was once again on the run from authorities. He moved to Hong Kong and then back to Moscow. The Comintern sent him back to France, and then he requested a transfer to Thailand, where he spent two years trying to revive the Vietnamese independence movement. Then in 1930, in Hong Kong, he presided over the creation of the Vietnamese Communist Party, or ICP. At this time, the ICP was one of many Vietnamese political parties that advocated for Vietnamese independence. Many nonviolent reform parties were based around Saigon. Many of these parties were similar to Congress in India, and some sought to even remain within the French imperial system. In the north and central Vietnam around Hanoi and Hue, the political parties took a more clandestine nature dedicated to the complete eviction of the French from Vietnam and Vietnamese independence. The major independence party during this period was the Vietnamese Nationalist Party with some 1,500 members organized into small groups in the Red River Delta, modeled on the Chinese nationalist movement of Sun Yat-sen. In early 1930, they tried to organize an uprising amongst the Vietnamese troops and the French army. Some soldiers did murder their French officers, but the vast majority remained loyal, and the French swiftly crushed the uprising and arrested the party's leadership. Those that were not arrested escaped to China. This created an opening for the ICP, which quickly became the number one target of the French security forces.
Throughout the 1930s, Ho kept on the move between China and the Soviet Union. It wasn't until the 1940s that Ho and his comrades would come into a position to establish a Vietnamese state in Vietnam. If you're interested to see how this came about and Ho's leadership during the war, I would recommend that you check out our last episode, 31, which we split into two parts covering the war from 1945 to 1950 and 1951 to 1954. When Ho Chi Minh and the communists re-entered Hanoi in 1954, after eight years of war, they entered the city quietly, with no celebrations, and Ho entered the city secretly. The new government declared that it represented the will of the people, and the cadres were instructed to behave properly and to treat the local people well. Students and teachers were urged to attend their classes and merchants to continue business. Foreigners were encouraged to stay and to continue their trade, even the French, although the vast majority had already left, Despite Ho's promises, though, the small community of Europeans and Americans were closely watched. Ho then checked himself into the hospital. Years of living in the jungle on the move had taken a toll on his buddy. After his, re after his release, he refused to live in the presidential palace, which he considered too pretentious, and instead lived in the gardener's house on the palace grounds. After the war, despite the division of the country, Ho was still committed to unifying Vietnam, although he believed that Vietnam's unity could only be achieved with the assistance of outside support, especially as the U.S. had come to aid the Vietnamese government in the South. Moreover, the party's leadership had decided the North had to be rebuilt before any war of unification could take place, as any war with the South would be long and difficult. In meetings with Nehru, Ho assured him that he did not wish to spread communism to the region and guaranteed that Vietnam would respect the royal governments of Laos and Cambodia. India, although it supported decolonization, was worried about the growing communism in the region and the growing influence of China. Ho met with the French ambassador and said that Vietnam would be open to reestablishing diplomatic contacts with France and expressed a willingness to retain a level of French cultural and economic influence. Ho's and North Vietnamese press's views towards the Americans were harsher, and in the following weeks, many restrictions were placed on the U.S. consulate, and it was forced to close within a year. The biggest question facing the leadership of the DRV was how to rebuild the North. It should be remembered that Indochina had been at war for eight years and that had left both major cities in the North, Hanoi and Haiphong, heavily damaged. There were two basic schools of thought around this. Part of the party believed that North Vietnam should follow the path of Mao's China to radically demolish the colonial edifice and the capitalist society, eliminating wealthy peasants, landlords, and merchants, followed by the state seizing all major businesses and putting Vietnam on a crash course of heavy industrialization. On the other side, Ho and many others favored a gradual growth of the economy towards socialism and a phased approach to, readdress moderate, to re reassure moderates, spur economic revival, and raising the overall standard of living. Initially, the government followed this approach. It declared that it would not become involved in the private market to reassure merchants and foreigners. Second, it only nationalized those businesses and public services that had been run by the French or the Bao Dai government. Private ownership of all types of property would be guaranteed, including that of foreigners. Freedom of religion was guaranteed. Civil servants of the imperial regime and the Baodai government were not to be arrested, and all civilian officials were instructed to stay at their post for the moment. All of this wasn't done just out of the goodness of their heart, own hearts, though. 
North Vietnam was suffering what we would call today brain drain. Thousands of former civil servants and the North's intelligentsia were fleeing south along with thousands of merchants who were taking their money and commerce with them. By October 1954, the DRV had only 50 college graduates in its ranks. The DRV also also wanted to take a moderate position for the upcoming elections scheduled in 1956 that were supposed to reunite the nation. The DRV believed that they had to show good leadership in the North to win a majority of the votes in the South to legitimize their future rule, rule of the country. Eventually, 800,000 Vietnamese left the North, many of them Catholics fearing reprisals for their connections with the French and the Bao Dai government, and they doubted they would be able to practice their faith under the new regime. However, an estimated 90,000 Viet Minh sympathizers in the, in the South moved north after the war, while another 10 to 15,000 remained in the South to take legal part in activities to promote the reunification of the nation. As a result of this max exodus, most of North Vietnam's factories were closed as their owners fled south. Transportation also remained an issue as the railroad ceased to operate due to lack of trained personnel and years of damage from sabotage. Gasoline was also in short supply. In addition, many rice fields and farms had been destroyed by the French, and 10% of the cultivated land had been abandoned as Catholic communities fled south. Floods in December worsened the situation as rice prices shot up and the country was on the verge of starvation. Both the Soviets and China, however, pledged substantial financial support to the regime, with China pledging $200 million and the Soviet Union $100 million. Both countries also agreed to send shipments of grain to combat the famine. Meanwhile, in the South, the new Diem government, backed by the United States, moved to destroy the Viet Minh movement in the South. Some Viet Minh fled north, whereas others fought clandestinely against the new Diem regime. However, the DRV felt that for the first priority had to be to rebuild the North before hostilities could be relaunched against the South. Despite the early emphasis on a gradual evolution of the economy towards socialism, radical elements in the party, under the influence of China, sought to transfer land from the wealthy landlords to the peasants. Despite the fact that many landlords and well-to-do peasants had supported the Viet Minh in the war, they sought to create a new rural leadership of former peasants who would be loyal to the party. This resulted in a wave of violence across the countryside as wealthy peasants were arrested and sometimes similarly executed. By spring 1955, Ho had grown concerned about the rise in violence and the following year publicly spoke out against it, but his words had little effect. Ho had slowly been losing in his influence amongst the party leadership and had become, in his old age, a figurehead. However, he continued to command the foreign policy of the DRV because of his connections with the PRC, the Soviet Union, and much of the world. He was a widely known figure and had lived and worked in much of the world versus the rest of the DRV leadership, who primarily lived in Vietnam and were not widely known to the rest of the world outside of communist government circles. By 1956, the program of land redistribution had become discredited, and Ho Chi Minh took some of the blame for not stopping the radical elements sooner. He even publicly admitted and apologized for not listening to other voices on the Central Committee. He admitted that many serious errors had been committed, although the main effort had been successful. The Central Committee took the unprecedented step of removing several leading party members from the government. Ho's prestige as the all-knowing, all-caring leader had been damaged. 
Many party leaders held him responsible for the excesses since he had signed off on the program and had allowed it to go on for a year before he spoke out against it. For the rest of Ho's life, he remained marginalized from Vietnamese domestic policy, and his efforts were more primarily engaged with reunifying the nation and securing Chinese and Soviet aid. This became increasingly complicated over the years as the relationship between China and the Soviet Union broke down. On the plus side, this allowed Ho to play the two sides off against each other for the greatest for greater resources, although on the negative side, this resulted in a split within the communist world that resulted in Vietnam eventually having to choose sides, complicating uh, or culminating in a military clash with China in 1979. By 1969, Ho's health began to deteriorate from multiple health problems, including diabetes, which prevented him from participating in further active politics. However, he insisted that the Viet Cong forces in the South should continue to fight until all of Vietnam was reunited, regardless of the length of time that it might take, believing that time was on the DRV's side. Ironically, Ho had died on September the 2nd, 1969, the very day that he established the Vietnamese state some 24 years earlier. His death was kept a secret as to not ruin the holiday. With news of his death, though, two days later came an outpouring of emotion from the communist world. The Vietnamese decided to embalm his body as the Soviets had done with Lenin, and the Soviets sent advisors to help. To this day, his embalmed body is currently on display in a mausoleum in Hanoi, despite his, state, his will stating that he wanted to be cremated. In the post-Cold War world, many argue if Ho Chi Minh should be remembered as a nationalist or as a Marxist revolutionary. And I think it's fair to say that Ho Chi Minh, for Ho Chi Minh, independence and unification were always his first priority. From everything we know, it appears that Ho believed in a gradual form of socialism in contrast to that of Mao or Stalin, and he discouraged the use of mass violence and class warfare, which was embraced in China and the early Soviet Union. He also advocated for peace and cultural understanding more so than, say, Mao or Stalin. However, he wasn't afraid to resort to violence and war if it achieved his goal of a unified and independent Vietnam. Hello, Cold War history fans. This is Dave Forrest, producer of History of the Cold War podcast. Jeff and I want to thank you not only for listening to the podcast, but also contributing by offering insightful suggestions and financial contributions. It was our intention to make a history podcast fact-based with a neutral bias about the events of the Cold War so our listeners can make informed decisions about the world around them. And we wanted to offer the podcast free of cost through our website and RSS feed to the rest of the world. And thanks to the financial help of our listeners, we're able to fulfill that intention. I'm talking to you today because I'd like to inform you about the next steps technologically we'd like to take in our podcast over the next year. Firstly, we'd like to add new equipment to be able to conduct interviews with primary participants and expert commentators on the Cold War to offer you more views on the subject. Secondly, We'd like to improve the sound by upgrading our existing equipment and address some of the concerns that some of you have mentioned about the quality of sound, particularly those on mobile phones. I'd like to ask that if you can, please contribute financially. We ask for $5 a month through Patreon or whatever you feel is appropriate. Ultimately, the choice is yours. And as always, thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Vu Wen Jap was born into modest conditions in 1911 in central Vietnam. Jap's father was a fierce Vietnamese nationalist, and he worked as a clerk in one of the last Vietnamese kingdoms. 
As a boy, Jap loved to learn and did well in school. His primary school was administered by the French, but taught by local Vietnamese. Most of his time in school was spent learning Vietnamese until he reached the third grade when French was introduced. Like Ho, Jap's early education had been direct, deeply influenced by Confucius thought, but he also studied math, history, geography, literature, and natural science. At 12, he graduated from elementary school. That might not seem like a major accomplishment, but it was for most Vietnamese boys at this time. Jap soon took the entrance exam for additional schooling in Way, but failed. Undeterred, he studied hard for the next six months and took the exam again. This time, he scored the second amongst all the applicants who had taken the test that year throughout all of Vietnam. The Lycée National in Hue was a prestigious French-speaking school and had a, and a hotbed for revolution. Jap fit in well. He was an exceptional student and very skilled in history. Many of those who had attended the school, such as Ho Chi Minh himself, Diem and Jap would go on to be uh, critical players in later Vietnamese history. All lessons were taught in French, and the students were required to learn Vietnamese and English. Students also studied French literature, history, geography, math, physics, and chemistry. Those who completed seven years received the equivalent of a high school degree. The school was a center for revolutionary activity with many of the teachers advocating Vietnamese independence, and revolutionary literature floated around campus. It was here that Jap first read the writings of Ho Chi Minh and became inspired. Jap quickly became the head of a movement on campus that challenged the authority of the French headmaster, and he was quickly expelled. After leaving school, Jap remained in Way and established an underground library, which was supplied with books from, uh, by the French communist organizations. He found work at a newspaper but by night and was involved with nationalist parties. Eventually, he was arrested and spent two years in prison, where he met his future wife. After leaving prison, he worked as an accountant and tutor in French and math. Uh, with the help of a French secret police official, Marty, uh, Jap was able to take the baccalaureate uh, to receive a high school diploma. This was highly unusual, as very few Vietnamese actually passed the exam. For example, in 1943, out of 3,000 test takers, only 61 passed. It was also considered a great honor to even to, even when wealthy francophones were allowed to take the test, let alone a formal political prisoner. It's unclear what Jap provided in exchange for Marty to pull the strings for him to take the test and get admitted later to college. Some say he spied for the French, others that he double-crossed the French, feeding them false information for their help getting into school. Whatever the reason, the late 1930s passed quietly for Jap at a time when many nationalists were arrested, exiled, or imprisoned with long sentences. Armed with his degree, Jap taught history and French at a private school. Students recalled that his classes were very popular. He could teach the class about French, the French Revolution and Napoleon from memory, explaining minor details from all of Napoleon's minor major battles. Napoleon, in, in many ways, was Jap's hero and a guiding star as he tried to model his life on his. Wanting to know more about politics and economics, Jap got into law school at the University of Hainau. Uh, while attending law school, he also began his own paper. His paper was shut down by French authorities after his fifth issue, but he soon reopened a French paper. In 1937, Jap joined the Communist Party. In 1938, he graduated from law school in the top 10 of his class. 
He was given the opportunity to move to France to pursue a Ph.D., but he turned it down in favor of continuing his support for the revolutionary activities in Vietnam. By 1939, Jap had quickly moved up the ranks of the Communist Party through a combination of hard work and luck, as many other leaders had been arrested. At 28, he also became married and started a family with his wife, Quang Tai. In 1940, recognizing that Jap was a gifted young man and one of the stars of the party, they sent him along with another comrade to meet Ho, Chi- Ho in China. Jap said goodbye to his wife and daughter, not knowing that it would be the last time he would see his wife. In May 1941, French authorities arrested her along with Jap's older sister. A French military court found her guilty of conspiracy and sentenced her to life in prison and hard labor. She was brutally beaten and tortured with electric shock and snails that were placed in her vagina. The snails would try and swim and bite their way to safety in what, by all accounts, is an extremely painful experience. French sources claim that she committed suicide in the end uh, in prison, while some American sources say that she was hung by her thumbs, naked, and beaten to death. Jap's older sister also died in French captivity. Later in 1946, French authorities arrested his father and tortured him to compel him to publicly disown his son. Jap and his father had not been on speaking terms for years, as his father disapproved of his son joining the Communist Party. Nevertheless, he refused to publicly disown him. His son was kept, and he was kept in solitary confinement. When this didn't work, he was tied to the back of a car by a rope and dragged until he relented and disowned his son in a 1947 radio address. He subsequently died a short time later due to his injuries. These tragedies fostered a hatred of the French in Jap. Back in China, though, Jap frequently met with Ho and quickly became his right-hand man and served as the Minister of the Interior and Ho's first government. He was capable, efficient, and ruthless in equal measure. Ho sent Jap to northern China to study with Mao and the Communist Chinese. While there, he learned about tactics, strategy, equipment, training, and recruitment. From the Chinese, Jap learned guerrilla warfare that spread across the countryside and sought to win the popular support of the people to the side of the revolution. Jap was already convinced by 1944 that Japan would lose the war in the Pacific and that they would have to fight the French for their independence, and Ho Chi Minh tasked Jap with creating a Vietnamese army of national liberation. At 32, when Jap took command of his army, he had 35 men and women under his command with one light machine gun, 17 modern rifles, 14 flintlock muskets, and two revolvers. Jap decided upon a three-pronged approach to the war in Vietnam. The first would be a rural strategy copied from the Chinese. Second, unlike the Chinese, though, he would mix a terrorist element into his movement to contest control of urban areas. Finally, he would build a conventional force, copying Napoleon's approach of keeping his enemy off balance and outmaneuvering smaller enemy forces with his army uh, that he could defeat in the field, concentrating on his enemy's center of gravity. Thus, he planned on engaging the enemy on several fronts at once, and not just in in the geographical sense, but also on the political, psychological, and diplomatic level. Jap set about gaining some experience for his troops and building up his forces. They attacked small, isolated French and Japanese posts. By spring 1946, he was organizing small hamlets and village defense forces throughout northern Vietnam. He also organized production of knives, rifles, bombs, and even copies of Japanese machine guns. He established a self-defense school where he gave lectures. 
At the end of 1945, Jap was handling many of the responsibilities that a major and Western army would be, and by 1946, he was handling responsibilities similar to that of a four-star general. Over a few months, he had expanded the army by ten times its size. For those who could not join the military or serve in the local militia, he encouraged them to build a, a altar to the fatherland to evoke nationalism akin to ancestor worship, which was widespread in Asia. Jap also recruited about 1,500 ex-Japanese soldiers and former Kenpai Tai to serve with his forces. These men faced charges under the Allies and did not want to turn themselves over to the Chinese or British after the war. In exchange for their service to the Vietnamese and in helping to train his army, he gave them new identities as Vietnamese citizens. I'm not going to illustrate Jap's leadership of the Viet Minh Army during the First French-Indochina War, as I've already covered that in my last episode, nor will I cover his command of Vietnamese forces during the Second Vietnam War and the Vietnamese War with Cambodia, nor China's invasion of Vietnam, as I will be covering all of these wars in future episodes. Jap finally retired from his post at the Defense Ministry in 1981 and retired from the Politburo in 1982. He remained on the Central Committee and Deputy Prime Minister until he retired in 1991. Jap wrote extensively on military theory and strategy, writing several books. In 2010, Jap became a prominent critic of bauxite mining in Vietnam, following government plans to open large areas of the Central Highlands to this practice. Jap indicated in a 1980 study uh, led by experts, they advised against mining due to severe ecological damage and national security. On October the 4th, 2013, a Vietnamese government official announced that Jap had died aged 102 at the Central Military Hospital 108 in Hanoi, where he had been living since 2009. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 32, Ho Chi Minh and General Chap. Make sure you tune in for our next show on the Soviet Empire, 1945 to 1953. We will be taking a greater examination of the Soviet Union during this time, Eastern Europe, and the early Cold War from the Soviet perspective. If you like this episode or any of the episodes so far, feel free to share them on social media. If you don't have a lot of friends in the history but want to help us, uh, feel free to give us a positive rating on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to give us feedback about the show, ask questions, or give us show ideas, feel free to check us out uh, at our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. As always, uh, to make a financial contribution to keep us on the air, please consider pledging at the $5 level on Patreon or whatever amount you feel is appropriate through the website. Well, there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th.
Join in club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.